0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, everything you could possibly think of has its own history, like aardvarks, butter and pyjamas.
1: Or, and I hadn't prepared this at all, so it's completely off the top of my head, jam, spam and on the lamb. So it's about running away. Ham, clam and that's about the sort of shellfish, and wham, it's a history of 1980s pop groups. However, we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining, explaining very carefully how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, and this is one that I want to do in the future, that the history of sheds is in fact all about World War II, World War I, the Holocaust, isolation, invention, male ineptitude, and exploration, or... It's also about invention. Have I mentioned that? Yes, I think I have. Or that the history of arrogance, big-headedness, is all about Henry VIII. And that's one of our homeschooling episodes that will be on the airwaves for your delectation very, very soon.
0: I'm looking forward to that. Do We're doing the history of big heads, aren't we? Yes, we certainly That's are. That's going to be good. I've been just idly thinking about who the other big heads in history are, and it's quite a fun game to play if you've got a few minutes free. There are lots and lots and lots of them. <laughs> or, or, or people I might have that to divide you know. Them up into like... yeah, yes, yes, people in your past, in your yes. own history, who have been big-headed at some point. Or your present as well, yes. <laughs> Um The man not sitting opposite me, ladies and gentlemen, because we are still in social distancing um, mode... Um, even though we live in the same city, he let's just say, if if history was the moon, <laughs> he would be the dark side of the moon. It is <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It is the wonderful Professor James Daybell. Hey, James.
1: Hello, Hello Sam. How are you, how are you doing? Uh, and the man. I'm, I'm not, good. Man. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. And the man not sitting opposite me because he is the other side of town in lockdown in his shed dreaming up all sorts of. Brilliant historical ideas. Let's just say that if he were to be a superhero, he would be the Shadow himself. It is the truly Ooh. famous historical adventurer, Doctor Sam
0: Willis. Is
1: the Shadow? A Hello, everyone. Thing? Is the Shadow a good thing to be? Uh, is he a good? Superhero? I don't know. I,
0: I I literally have never heard of the Shadow. I don't know anything about him or her or them. Oh, well, let's just say I. Yeah. Let's just say I made it up. Um... Okay, well, um, it's like the dark side of the moon, James. I think. Ah, no, it
1: is. It is a. It's a. It's the shadow is a a comic strip character. He looks. He looks very scary indeed. He looks sort of heroic um, and slightly Mm -hmm. sinister, uh, which is nothing like you at all. Very. Um, Anyway,
0: if you haven't worked it out yet, (laughs) if you haven't worked it out yet, we are doing the history of shadows, uh, which is which is a good one. Yep. Um, someone once stole my dog. I have a black dog, and um, they temporarily borrowed it. They claimed, but actually stole it, and then gave him the name of Shadow when I picked him up. When he wasn't called Shadow, I've just remembered this. It was a very bad, bad experience. Um, well, I've they, been, yeah, yeah. I've been learning Geronimo, all about. I've
1: been learning all about shadows uh, with homeschooling with my eight-year-old, uh, who's been looking Ooh, at on. light and how shadows are cast over different objects. So if we were thinking about how we were going to uh, pull apart this history of shadows uh, we could think about it in terms of the science behind shadows understanding the movement of the sun so we could look at that across time. We could then think about the use of shadows so shadows for telling time and shadow clocks. We could then think about thirdly the misuse of shadows so it's about secrecy and concealment and hiding in the shadows in order to be up to no good. It's a little bit like our chapter on darkness in our book on World War Two. all the things that went on
0: Ooh, yeah. in the shadows. And the shadows of walls, the it's, shadows of walls. We talked about that subversive people yes. doing stuff in the shadows of walls in our Roman book.
1: Mm. Exactly and think about the 17th century walls of York around the city of York and Think about how prostitutes would have hidden in the walls or thieves would have been, you know, in those shadows. We could also, fourthly, think about the meaning of shadow. So it's about how people interpret the shadow uh, and how that has changed in the past. We can think about superstitious beliefs that people have connected to people's shadows, the shadow as a as a as something that's connected to somebody's soul, as something that is the portent of God's meaning or will. Or fifthly, lastly, we could think about metaphorical meanings of shadows. To be in the shadows, to be in somebody else's shadow it means that you don't have the light shone upon yourself but you are in their shadow, you're always second place. We could think about that in terms of in terms of siblings, you know, how siblings are in one shadow. Or we could apply it to absolutely anything. It's the person who doesn't get the glory. So there we are. There's a little sort of wet entree into the shadows.
0: Uh, entertainment, um, I've just Ooh. suddenly thought of. We went to see a, a play in the West End. Uh, I took the kids to go and see a play in the West End before all this horror happened. And it was a really impressive magic show, basically. Um, but the best bit of the entire thing was a guy just standing at the front um, making uh, making shapes with his hands. Uh, he just did it after the interval. And it was truly fantastic. So entertainment as well is a, is a key Ooh, aspect. Of that, shadow it? puppets as well.
1: Yeah. Shadow yeah, puppets. Yeah. Are you any good at shadow puppets? Mm. No, not I one make, of my skills. I make a very mean uh,
0: dove and also a rabbit. Oh, do you? Yes, very <laughs> excellent. I'm probably quite good at writing about shadow puppets. Yes, I'm sure <laughs> no. you are. I'm yeah. sure you are. So where are you going to begin? Well, um, I'm going I'm to take us to the um, cliff tops of Cornwall. Ah. Um, just uh, the beach of Travone Bay, just outside Padstow on the 11th of August in 1999. Because um, I'm going to think about eclipses and actually the, the way that shadows can act as milestones in your own personal history as well as global history. Um, and actually, I remember that this was the the, um, the solar eclipse. I was lucky to have one in my lifetime and it's a real marker in my life, like... I don't know, going abroad for the first time, or uh, my twenty-first birthday, or my wedding, or birth of my children, whatever it might be. I see it as a real, um, as a real pillar in my history, and I remember it very vividly. The c- crowds of people all standing up on the cliff there, waiting, waiting for it to happen. Everyone had these these funny glasses, peering at the sun. Um, there was a quite a cool one. Were you in Plymouth, James, for it or not? I wasn't. No, no. No, they they managed to have it on a kind of a big screen. It was really clever. So they put a screen up, and then it 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 it, it showed it in a way that wasn't um, damaging to people's eyes. It was really mm. interesting. Have a look at look at what they managed to do there. And so gradually, what you've got is the sun. You know, it uh, the moon moves over the sun, um, and it, the sun becomes a crescent. Like, and then eventually, it's a it's a circle with a kind of a ring. Um, a ring of fire around it and when I was there just as the uh, is all about to happen the clouds parted it was one of those lovely kind of cloudy August days you get in Cornwall and I got to see it now what I was thinking was interesting about it I was 22 my parents had never seen one um I'd worked out that my grandparents might have seen one. I don't know if they did, but to have seen one, they would have to have been lucky enough to be somewhere on a line between North Wales, Lancashire and the North East Coast. And they had to be looking at the sky at exactly the right time um, for those key 24 seconds it was. And they had to be doing that in June 1927. Um, And uh, this happened for us at a time we've got massive media coverage. Everyone knew that the solar eclipse was happening. And I was wondering whether it would have been the same in the 1920s. Um, Mm. Another one during my grandparents' lifetime happened in 1925, but they would have had to have been um, in the Hebrides. They would have had to have been um, pretty keen eclipse spotters to have seen those ones. And I think, you know, thinking about my parents and my grandparents, it's pretty implausible they would have seen either of those two. Which means, and I worked this out, it's absolutely fantastic, that I was the only member of my family who'd seen a total eclipse. or only member of anyone related to me through my family tree, maybe, who'd seen a total eclipse in the UK since 1724 at the earliest. Which I thought was an amazing claim and something I was rather proud of. I'm not sure how many other things like that are actually quite that rare. Certainly, I do remember how the sky turned grey, temperatures fell, and most notably, most strikingly, was how animals started acting strangely. Um, um, The thing that really struck me in my mind was how the birds fell silent, and then the the gulls sort of swooped in a a vortex and all flew out to sea, crying at what I suppose they thought was dawn, but it wasn't. Um, It was very, very interesting indeed, and I became fascinated in that animal behaviour and realised that the study of animals in eclipses, the study of animal behaviour in eclipses, has its own history. Um, There are accounts from 1554 and from 1560 uh, which describe Strange bird behaviour. There's another wonderful one from 1851 in Sweden where someone describes a swarm of ants which were busily carrying their burdens stopped and remain, remained motionless till the light reappeared. And there are Many, many more examples like this. I want to take you through a few of them. The first time that animal behaviour was studied systematically was in 1932 in Massachusetts. And the results absolutely fascinated scientists because what they found was that there was a difference within species which is greater than that between species, so you 'd have some gulls, for example, flapping wildly while others paid no attention at all, some chickens scrambling to get to the coop while others just kind of clucked along without paying any any notice at all um, and you 've got other birds being more fretful than others, and that says a lot about our understanding of animal psychology as well, actually, which has changed everyone was surprised by that in the 1930s but now um, that is 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 a less intriguing. To scientists, but I've got some descriptions of um, people observing animals during the eclipse. They're just brilliant. Here you are. I can't do an American accent, but I wish I could. I have 15 colonies of bees which I watched closely. The field bees had been working heavily on goldenrod all day and everything was normal till darkness began to come when they came home in unusually large numbers. When it was darkest, they had not all reached the entrances of their respective hives, and it was then too dark for them to see their way. So they kept flying about in the air or landed in the grass till it lighted up again. Then they found their way home and became very quiet. Some stragglers still came in from a distance. Later, after the eclipse was nearly over, they ventured out again very slowly." And uh, I love this one. The American Toad, or the Fowler's Toad. This is based on three reports. Um... Uh, one here we are Uh, the toad remains quietly sleeping throughout the greater part of the day thereby keeping himself from being a nuisance and also saving himself from the danger of being stepped upon but at sunset or often earlier than that he comes out from his bed under porch or shrubbery and starts on his regular tour over lawns and through gardens (laughs) i love that one um Uh, Butterflies? The butterflies were not seen. Or, uh, that was uh, from uh, Mrs W Plummer of West Lebanon, New Hampshire. The butterflies were slower in leaving, but began to disappear. And by 4.20, none was in sight by Mr G Thompson from Dighton, Massachusetts. Um... Moths, the night millers were thick. I like that, the night millers. Uh, That was Mr Davis, CM Davis from Long Island. So there you go, some wonderful examples and there are lots of them. And um, it's a very enjoyable read, this. This is the results of a study of animal behaviour in an eclipse from 1932 in America.
1: Oh, loving that. Take it from your personal history all the way through to something that's macro. Uh, Very, very good. Now, I want to take us in a slightly different direction, which picks up on our episode on the history of beards uh, the other day. And we we talked about there about uh, the fact that during lockdown, everyone is growing beards and then showed how the beard had a very interesting history. Now, linked to that, I want to talk about the history of the five o'clock shadow. In other words, it's that fleck of stubble that develops on your chin towards the end of the day. And this is a... During the 80s, this was very much a designer thing, and the rise of designer stubble with people like George Michael uh, from Wham! or uh, Don Johnson in Miami Vice, uh, who were very sort of macho and sort of uh, not well-shaven, well-groomed, but sort of slightly rugged because they had this, this designer stubble. However what i want to talk about is the way in which uh the clean shave was invented and that actually that this sort of not being shaven was equated with slovenliness so it was something that um you know people shouldn't do and this links us to marketing uh during the uh 1930s in particular and beyond in America. And we've talked about this uh, a little bit uh, across some of our episodes. And this is the, the sort of the rise of the American dream in marketing. It's the way in which people were persuaded that they needed to consume the latest white goods, that they needed to stop smelling. And we looked at that in the history of soap. And here we're having a look at it in terms of people needing to be clean. And I, I want to just read you an advert from 1930s here, 1937. It's a US poster advert for gem micromatic razors. And it encouraged men to avoid the five o'clock shadow and boasted many of the sort of brilliant qualities of this wonderfully designed product. I mean, I don't know whether this was when the the phrase five o'clock shadow was coined. It probably was. Uh, But just listen to this. Uh, It's It depicts two sort of attractive women with full makeup and and lipstick um, talking to each other and pointing at somebody. And then it has the tagline, don't let five o'clock shadow start a whispering campaign. Let down a little in your personal appearance and it's just human nature for others to surmise that things aren't so good with you. Five o'clock shadow, that unsightly beard growth which appears prematurely at about 5pm looks bad. There's no denying that. It's caused directly by using inefficient shaving instruments which merely top the beard. Note this well. A gem blade in a gem razor guarantees shadowless shaves which last to the end of the longest day. For the gem micromatic razor is scientifically right. It's built-in, face-fitting bevel, hugs every spatial contour, compels the long, smooth, gliding stroke of the master barber, shaves at the one correct angle, clean and close at the dermal line. All one piece, Gem is the world's easiest razor to use. Twist, it opens. Twist, it closes the gem micromatic blade is made of 50% thicker surgical steel and so can be given a deeper bevelled edge this edge is struck 4840 separate times to incredible keenness my god that's a that's a powerfully sharp blade <laughs> a keenness that lasts you get cleaner shaves and far more of them to each blade Stay clean with them. One dollar buys a gem razor with five blades, handsomely cased at all dealers. Or send coupon below and 25 cents in coin or stamps for convincing proof. Don't let five o'clock shadow start a whispering campaign. Oh my gosh, that's absolutely brilliant. So what's amazing about this is the way in which advertising campaigns like that started changing the way in which people's images put forward and this has a political edge because in the 1960 presidential campaign between Richard Nixon who was vice president and Senator John Kennedy this was a time when they were both to be featured in a series of televised debates and when you're debating on the radio facial appearance doesn't really matter and the thing is once the cameras are on you then it shows up every single blemish. And so politicians had to start taking much more, much more care and attention over their appearance. And the thing with Nixon is that he had an incredibly thick beard. So, you know, he could more or less shave and 30 minutes later, he had sort of heavy stubble again. And this was actually something that he explained in a, just before the first debate, he explained to the television anchor, Walter Cronkite. And he said, I get letters from women, for example, sometimes, and men, who support me. And they say, why do you wear that heavy beard when you're on television? And and Nixon replies, actually, I don't try, but I can shave within 30 seconds before I go on television. And I still have a beard unless we put some powder on as we have done today. So it's not only about shaving, but it's also about cosmetic. So it's about the covering up of dark beards in order to look slightly more telegenic. And what's interesting is in that first debate between Nixon and Kennedy, Kennedy is this sort of tanned, athletic, quite uh, youthful-looking presidential candidate and really sort of just glows on the camera whereas Nixon at that time had had been suffering from from illness was coming back and instead of using makeup in the way that Kennedy was also using and Kennedy's also just brilliant tan he went out to a store and he bought some beard hide it's called lazy shave as the box claims it hides the beard and basically what it is is a color cake between shaves it's created by max factor the cosmetic uh company and it then goes on to be used in hollywood for male actors and at this point it doesn't really work as well for nixon as this sort of tanned kennedy uh and kennedy narrowly wins this first debate and goes on to win the election so there we are there's um five o'clock shadow for you sam
0: yeah, I love that. I love the, the the links and um and the kind of the personal problems of appearance with with Nixon there. That's great. Very good indeed. <laughs> uh, I I'd to go back to my actual eclipses as well because there's a way of using these shadows telling the time is one we talked briefly about that I didn't mention it. Um it, it reminded me of the um oh the the portable sundials that they found on the Mary Rose. They're like Tudor personal watches. This is the Henry VIII's warship that sank in uh, 1545 and um Among the artefacts, they found all of these portable sundials, a key thing for mariners. But if you think more broadly about why eclipses matter and how they were used, and it's actually fundamental to history. Um, I found something online. James, what do you think of this? Wouldn't it be weird if history textbooks were not written chronologically? Question mark. If, for example, you learned about the American Civil War and after that, the fall of the Berlin Wall and then after that, the Protestant Reformation, question mark, it would be pretty difficult to grasp context. It would be pretty difficult to trace cause and effect between various historical events. (laughs) I love this because it wound me up so much because it's the opposite of what we do with histories of the unexpected. The whole point is we actually bounce around all over the place. What do you think?
1: Uh, I love bouncing around all over the place and I don't... I, I think there is uh, an important place for chronology and for understanding things uh, across time. But I also think there's a way in which we should look at things in a, in a thematic, conceptual way. I actually find that much more, much more interesting. I mean, people who say, oh, that's just not history. Um, basically, you should go out and, and think uh, about history uh, a little more clearly.
0: <laughs> well and, and certainly read some of these amazing books which are written on exactly. email, which are not necessarily chronological but um, it seemed an incredibly old-fashioned and slightly backward way of doing it but it also makes you realise that, that that's pretty much how history is taught at school isn't it it really is very very chronological this happened then this happened then this happened um, the thematic stuff tends to, to come in when you study history at university and beyond is that right?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I imagine. I think when when I when I were a lad, that was the way that history was taught. And there is a there's that sense now in which they are trying to teach a chronology, at least of British history. But I think there there's also a lot of thematic stuff. So you might be taught the history of medicine, which allows you to sort of look at things across oh, time. I yeah. um, so I think it's sort of and also the way in which you understand your you understand yourself within a sort of a, a time continuum. Um, So, yeah. So, yes, I mean, there's lots of lots of sort of intermixing. And I suppose it depends whether you're following the national curriculum, how much scope you have to sort of go off piste. Um, But yeah, but but I think there are there is a sort of staple diet of stuff that you need to that you need to have captured by key Stage 2, for example, which takes you up to the um, Anglo-Saxons or whatever.
0: Anyway. The point is, is that history is really bound up with chronology um, and uh, eclipses are actually fundamental to that because it helped it's people who, who studied the history of chronology early on to actually put everything in its proper place to help us do our jobs as historians was um, eclipses absolutely fundamental to it because of the chronological and the geographical scope of people recording eclipses because they were such important things to them and also because of their accuracy. Check this out. Between 1771 BC and 1368 AD in China alone there have been 938 solar eclipses were recorded. Often recorded by astronomers but then historians have been able to use that information to create a chronological structure. Um, which is great because here's a wonderful example. If an eclipse is known to have happened in a certain location, but there's no actual date, then you can give that location a date. So take early Chinese history. You have a text which records that during the first year of the reign of King Yi in the first month of spring, the sun rose twice at Zheng. So that was used to date the start of King Yi's reign exactly to 901 BC. Similarly, another description of an eclipse. On the first day of the last month of autumn, during which the blind musicians beat their drums and the lower ranked officers and common people bustled and ran about. That was used to date the reign of King Zhong Kang, the fourth king of the Shia dynasty, the earliest of the famous three dynasties of the early Chinese civilization, up to 1880 BC. So it's fundamentally important. And it, you can actually look at the people who've used eclipses like this to establish chronology. One of them, one of the most interesting ones I've come across, is a guy called Joseph Scaliger, 1540 to 1609. And just to give you a sense of how difficult and confusing and I think how admirable their work was, let me just read this. He created something called the Julian Period. It's a cycle of 7,980 Julian years obtained by multiplying together a 28-year solar cycle, a 19-year lunar cycle and a 15-year indiction cycle. The 28-year cycle was used in the Roman and then in the ecclesiastical calendar to calculate on which day of the week a given day of the year would fall. The 19-year cycle was devised to regulate a lunar-solar calendar and to predict approximately when new moons would fall during a civil year based on the sun. you following this, James? I certainly am. (laughs) The 15-year cycle was political, not astronomical in origin, and was employed... In, for example, the Byzantine Empire. Scaliger obtained a cycle of 7,980 years in which each year had a unique set of three identifying numbers, one in each of the three constituent cycles. He called this set the year's character. Only after 7,980 years, the last common multiple of 28, 19 and 15 could be repeated. I'm going to stop there. It can go on and on and on. Anyway, it's unbelievably... Complicated. And some of the brightest people in history are the ones who've wrestled with this problem of being able to identify dates. So the sheer fact that we can actually give um, important events or reigns dates going back into deep history rests entirely on a load of geniuses who were working around the 16th century. There you go.
1: Brilliant. I want to take that on and and think about not just about dating but also how people in the past have understood such celestial phenomena uh, as shadows which i think is absolutely fascinating because shadows have shadows cast over the earth have been understood as profound messages sometimes from the heavens from god so for example if you look at events like the crucifixion of christ at the birth of the prophet muhammad Solar eclipses have been linked with each of those events. Um, if we move to the Reformation period in Germany, and you think about the Reformation figure Martin Luther. He views eclipses in this sense as well. He sees them as evil omens or portents, just as he might view monstrous births. In other words, the sort of the birth of of, of children who were misshapen, misformed. And he notes that they were appearing more and more frequently in the early 16th century, which he interpreted as a sign of the end of time approaching. Uh, And when the world didn't end, uh, as it didn't, uh, he treated such predictions with scorn. I'll give you another example. In 1628, an eclipse of the moon and the sun led Italian astrologers to predict the death of Pope Urban the 8th. And so spooked was Pope Urban by these celestial portents that he issued, get this, he issued a papal bull that forbade any such celestially inspired predictions in the future. And under the guidance of Dominican friar Tommaso Campanella, a series of rituals were performed in a sealed room, and these included candles being lit to represent beneficent planets, music was played, liquids were drunk and sprinkled, all in order to offset what he saw as the evil effects of these portents that cast the earth in shadow. So part of it is a sort of, is a superstitious, or what we would see as a superstitious belief in the gods, or God in this case, intervening in the earth. And while Shadows cast by celestial forces might be interpreted as either omens or signs of God's intervention. Personal shadows have been understood in interesting ways in cultures around the world. So these are not shadows that are cast you know, by the sun, but the shadows of individuals as they as they fall on the ground. Take, for example, Aboriginal culture in, in Australia. Aborigines thought that if an enemy captured any article belonging to an individual, it could be used as a charm or to harm or cause illness to that person. So when they were departing a camp, they were very careful to leave nothing behind. And on occasion, where they came across items belonging to their own enemies, these were handed to their chief and great care was taken by aboriginals not to allow their own shadow to pass over the object for fear of what might happen to them as a consequence of this. And this is something that we can also see elsewhere around the world. In the 19th century, magicians on the island of Wetar in the eastern archipelago of Indonesia claimed that they could make a man ill by stabbing his shadow or hacking it with a sword in the manner of... It's rather similar to sticking a pin in a voodoo doll. In Greece and in Romania, again in the 19th century, superstition held that to bury a man's shadow under the foundations of a house would protect the building, but the man himself would die within a year. I mean, this is a bizarre thing. How does somebody go about building a house and protect it? You know, do you do you sort of bring somebody along and, you know, and get them to sort of, um, you know, cast their shadow over it um, and then they later on die? Do you tell them that or not? Um, and this belief in the custom was so widespread that tales circulated of unscrupulous builders enticing people onto building sites only to surreptitiously measure out their shadow for burial. So, absolutely bizarre practice. So, in this sense, shadows are often tied up with popular superstition and belief, and they're viewed as an extension of the self. You know, rather like a reflection with mysterious properties that extended from their physical body. Isn't that extraordinary?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it really makes you think about all sorts of things. That, rather surprising. I was going to finish with a lovely little poem by uh, a chap called Walt Whitman, very famous American poet. Uh, he lived in the 19th century between 1819 and 1892 and I'm just saying this because we've spoken so much about celestial bodies and um and the the, the shadow link there and he wrote a poem called When I Heard the Learned Astronomer and I love this because uh i was quite conscious of me and James standing here spouting stuff all the time and occasionally you might want to just ignore what we say and go and think about it yourself. And This is exactly the same principle. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, How soon unaccountable I became tired and sick till rising and gliding out I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars.
1: Isn't Lovely. that brilliant? I love brilliant. it. Brilliant. I'm going to brilliant. write that
0: down. Have it on my have it on my wall. Um, just to you know, just to go and wonder at the majesty of nature rather than trying to understand it all. Um, that's it for today, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it. I very much enjoyed that one on shadows. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com. You can follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis, and you can follow me at James Daybell, and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. And uh, Blue, please uh, come and join us. We'd love to hear from every single one of you. If you could do anything to help, please leave us a review on iTunes. It would make all the difference. But that's it, guys. We'll be back soon. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.